Hello world, welcome to uh, the Political Worldview podcast, January 13th, 2016, the North Korean nukes and Cologne street assaults edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham. Joined as always in this happiest of new years by my usual co-hosts, Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello, Kristala. Hello, Adam. Hello, world. Happy New Year, everyone. And by Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and the editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Ah, I'm absolutely cheerful. I can see that 2016 will be nothing but hope and glory for all of us. Well, from that uh, inevitable peak from which we will descend over the course of the year, both in terms of mood uh, and uh, optimism, uh, let's go to our two topics this week. First, North Korea claimed to have detonated a hydrogen bomb. Nobody believed them, but everyone still got pretty mad about it what to make of the hermit kingdom with a bomb in the basement and how to handle it. Second, the assault and robbery of tens, maybe hundreds of women on New Year's Eve in the German city of Cologne by large groups of men, the majority of whom were immigrants from North Africa and the Middle East, sent that country's debate over migration and asylum into overdrive. Can Chancellor Angela Merkel's policy of openness for refugees survive the political whirlwind thus generated? On the night of Tuesday, January the 5th, the U.S. Geological Survey detected a major tremor in the northeast of North Korea. Not long later, the country declared that it had carried out the testing of a thermonuclear weapon, or colloquially a hydrogen bomb, the more powerful relation of the atomic bomb, which North Korea already possesses. Experts have been sceptical of this claim because the blast size wasn't as great as one would expect of an H-bomb. Nevertheless, it was a nuclear test of some sort, and the reaction of the world has been... Displeased. Uh, The UN Security Council condemned it as a clear threat to international peace. The United States sent a B-52 bomber on a low-level flight over neighboring South Korea, its ally. And even the closest thing North Korea has to a friend, China, showed some steel, declaring that it strongly opposed this act and will firmly push for the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. For listeners who don't have super long memories, North and South Korea have been an uneasy truce since the end of the Korean War all the way back in 1953, and the United States, which fought on the South side in that war, has been a major military presence there ever since. The North is pretty much unique in the world today in its combination of autarkic, there's a word you don't hear very often these days, autarkic communist economic policy, and the cult of personality around the family line of its founder, Kim Il-sung, whose grandson now allegedly runs the place although maybe that's a matter for some debate there. Since the 1990s, the country has engaged in on-and-off escalations of tension with the US and its neighbours, often extracting financial or other concessions in exchange for returning to what most nations uh, would consider normal behaviour. So, Scott... Uh, I feel like we've been here in various forms before. Is this just some more attention-seeking nonsense, um, or are we one minute closer to midnight in in Asia in terms of the nuclear Armageddon that some people uh, fear is going to emerge from this theatre? So let's continue with a hopeful 2016. Yeah, that would be pretty bad if we we ended hope within the first sentence of the first item. Let's predict that North Korea will not start a thermonuclear war this year. I'm going to be so bold as to say that because it's like when my kids were really little and I was off in my world of like trying to write or carry out research or do something, you know, productive with my day. And then they go, Daddy, look at me, 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 look at me. And then I'd remember I'd have to be a father. In this case, it's North Korea saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. We're, we're here. Recognize us. 
and hoping that some father around the world, the Americans, the Chinese, or the Russians, will pay attention to them. This has been done before. You're this is you North know, Korea with an Oedipal complex. Yeah, yeah. I was, was going to say, this I, is very yeah, Freudian. I'm, I'm trying to work out if you're saying that uh, North Korea reminds you of children or your children remind you of North Korea. <laughs> both. One or the other Absolutely both. There's no reason to say, look, there's a cause and effect here, which is basically, we're just going to scream loudly because we feel you're not paying attention to us. It's been done before. It's been done over decades. Every time we go through a cycle of, they announce a test, all the Asian countries say, oh, are they really playing up this time? The Japanese, as well as the South Koreans. And then we go back to, all right, what are we going to do about this problem child? The difference now is, I think, that we are now in a cycle where North Korea is feeling the economic squeeze more and more, and it is much more isolated than in previous decades. There was a time when the Chinese, for ideological reasons, geopolitical reasons, would play in North Korea's corner. They'd use the North Koreans as leverage against other countries in the region and against the Americans. I think the Chinese are tired of it. It's not in the Chinese economic interest or political interest for North Korea to destabilize the region. They certainly sounded tired by it. I mean, their response to this. I mean, they, they never come out yeah. and celebrate North Korea's shenanigans, but this time sounded especially yeah. sit down and shut up was the tenor of their, their remark. Yeah, I mean, and, and what happened, going back maybe about... 20 years now, which changed the mood music, is when the Clinton administration took a different approach to North Korea. So, right, we're going to engage with the problem, but we're going to do it not only through bilateral talks, we're going to talk to others in the region, including the Chinese, as well as Japan and South Korea. You put it in that multilateral framework, and if you continue to work with those countries, you keep the pressure on North Korea without threatening a confrontation. Well, North Korea's leaders, although they're isolated, are true enough to realize this, and somehow they've got to try to break that, um, unless they face the inevitable, which is they've got to open up their political system, their economic system, and basically accept that they're not going to be you know, some type of superpower, small superpower, able to wield this fictional hydrogen bomb over, over everyone else. Hmm. Okay, so that's a dismissive bat of the hand in North Korea's direction from Scott Cristala. Are you going to play I this simply? I wonder if... People tend to take North Korea not very seriously, right? Scott certainly doesn't sound like he's at his most serious. Maybe this is a journey he's been on. But maybe, maybe he's come out on the other end. But I wonder about the characterization of North Korea because they're very, there is a very cartoon-esque depiction of, of the North Korean state and particularly of its leadership. And, I mean, so Scott, you've depicted it as a, as a recalcitrant child. Uh, jumping up and down, wanting attention. And I wonder if actually it's a feeling of threat that they're under, that going into the psycho, the psychological situation, the psychological context of... Continuing the Freudian theme, absolutely. as it were. You're primed for Moving. this today. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to go with this today. But, but is it really... I mean, and if they do feel threatened and they respond in these ways quite continuously, then what is the logical response that particularly the US administration should be crafting? That's my first kind of question. Yeah. And then I would also wonder, has there been a pattern, and I'm not a North Korea follower at all, I'm waiting for Aaron, uh, Aaron, Aaron, Adam's job. Yeah, when's he getting here? That guy always sorts that out. I just blame the jet lag. I wish I could live up to his standards. So cool and popular. What was Knows I thinking? Thing. Wait, let me go back to my thought. Mm. Human rights, my thought was human rights. 
Is there a case where every time they they say that they've um, let off a bomb, we ignore their human rights record and there's a feeling of sensitivity around don't push them too hard? Does that happen? I think we've given up on their human rights record some time ago, haven't we, Scott? Is that is no, I, 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 I don't, conversation? I don't think they're not killing anyone outside their own country. Yeah. I think everyone's pretty much... So it's a happy. silent issue? I don't, I don't think human rights plays here in, in the broader issue. I mean, the Chinese are not going to want human rights to be an issue raised regarding any country because of their own situation, yeah. internal situation. And it really only kind of emerges if you get refugees, if you get some type of, of movement in North Koreans who are going to try to make it into China, yeah. which the Chinese have tried to clamp down on. Which the Chinese are afraid of. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's, that's the kind of the hold that, I mean, the, the North Koreans are very dependent on the Chinese. Yeah. That's right. But the hold that the North Koreans have over the Chinese, to some extent, is if the whole show comes yep. crashing yeah. down, then the fear is that there's going to be this tidal wave of people coming over the border into China that and they don't have any ability to cope with. And because, by tidal wave, you're talking about numbers like 10 million people, right? There was, uh, I mean, as many yeah. as can as, as can do it, yeah. both because of what they want to get away from, and I imagine you know uh, uh, anywhere is better would be would be their thought. Yeah. A lot of people are in North Korea. I would venture, without being uh, someone who's done a lot of research on site, uh, are there not because they think it's so awesome, but because it's a prison state, effectively, yeah. or as close as we still have to that in the world today. I mean, I, there's lots that's open up here in terms of trying to read North Korea. You know, I can only really speak from from colleagues who've been there, been able to get it. It's highly managed, as you know, the yeah. access to get in there. So what they will see is this very regimented state, that you'll see this idea of this loyalty to, to this family that is ruled there. You know, and it is, to use the old phrase, cult of personality, you'll see it everywhere throughout there. Now, how much of that is actually true, that people basically genuinely buy into that? How much is like, no, they really want to yeah. get out. Or is it some Eastern European thing where two yeah. minutes after the yeah. dam cracks, everyone just goes, oh, we're yeah. totally just saying that because yeah. we had to. Uh, no one's believed it for a long time. I don't think we can assess that, but I do think because people aren't quite certain what it means is to go, is that the fear is of regime collapse. You know, the fear, there's no one who's going in now and saying, we're going to take over North Korea, we're going to get rid of the country. You're going to want to, want to manage whatever happens in that. Mm. Which brings you, so on the U.S., what the Americans did, I think the Americans generally have gotten it right, and indeed the international community, before and after the Little Bush administration. Mm. The Little Bush administration. Is that what we're calling it now? Shrub. Little Bush. Well, yeah, the, the Shrub administration. <laughs> sure, sure right? why not? Because Although technically his father was the littler of the administrations, being only four years long. His father was a much bigger man than Shrub was, trust me. I mean, it's, you know, the, the Little Bush administration came in and, of course, immediately wanted to scrap the arrangements which had been made by its predecessor, by Clinton, by the international community mm. to manage the North Korean nuclear program, but more than that, the political and economic situation. And that could, was the really scary time. Yeah. Since we've gone into Obama, we've gone back to the question of engaging with the international community and not basically going unilateral confrontation. Yeah. So from that standpoint, I, you know, I'm not feeling you know, like nervous about where we're going to go with this. But again, You've raised it. I think I find North Korea to be one of the most unpredictable, unpredictable regimes ever to try to to, to discuss what happens next. And yeah. I think what you have to do is simply, rather than making big sweeping long-term statements on where we go, it's just like you go step by step. I mean, I you know certainly having feeling like I've been through this uh, particular ritual a few times, I get frustrated in much the same way that you did, mm -hmm. where you just go, "Oh, this again! Look, you people!" Um, and 
you know, the, our ability to do that and not worry about the consequence, I think, basically boils down to the question that, 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 that I think hovers over a few of these sorts of rogue state type questions, but especially this one, which is, are they crazy? Mm. Like, and if so, how crazy are they? Is what we, is what we, we wonder about. Like, on the one hand, um, you know, there's this cartoonish quality yeah. to, the, to, to the country's self-presentation that you described. I don't know if you saw the official statement they released uh, after this bomb went off. Vox.com yeah. published it in full. But it is, you know, it, it has that kind of mixture of self-victimization talk with celebration of the grandeur of its achievement, all in the most ludicrously overblown purple prose of a kind that you just don't get in the world anymore uh, today outside of, you know, the museums of the, yeah. the heights of the Cultural Revolution or something. Um, so there's that kind of crazy rhetorical style in which they present themselves, and there's the fact that it is this nightmarish prison state that, that doesn't seem to operate in a way that we would consider usual in the modern world. And there's, uh, um, there's also the fact that it seems to be riven with these sorts of internal divisions where people are doing stuff for reasons that are opaque to us, where you feel like their main goal is uh, to advance objectives we can't see, may possibly doing things that don't seem rational to us. And all that like, makes me worry, holy hell, if even China doesn't seem to be able to get these people to do what it wants and it doesn't seem like it can, maybe they will just do some unpredictable, insane thing that kills us all for reasons that we just couldn't begin to understand. And that would be bad. So I worry about that. But on the other hand, you know, these people aren't especially religious. They don't even, I suspect from what we hear about the inner cadre that actually runs the country, believe in communism to the extent of taking it to a religious level. You know, these people spend their time watching Hollywood movies and drinking smuggled brandy uh, while, the, while the population lives in the sort of nightmarish museum to, to old-school communism. And that makes me feel like, well, their main goal is just not to die, uh, either at the hands of their own citizens or the hands of external powers. Therefore, they will do the rational thing, at least to that baseline of rationality, which is pull away as soon as it seems like their actions might be leading to some kind of conflict. So I think it's a great test case for how much faith we have in some of these IR theories that say, okay... Lots of different domestic systems, lots of people seem crazy, lots of people believe different things, but boil it all down, at the end of the day, everyone has a default reflex to self-preservation, at least everyone who runs a state does, uh, and therefore you can, you can rely on them turning away from the game of chicken at, at the last minute if you're prepared to be tough with them. And so I just wondered, like, am I just mirroring in thinking that, like, well, clearly if I was in this position, I couldn't really believe this, uh, this stuff, uh, and I would be talking a good game but ultimately just interested in my self-preservation therefore they must feel the same and how confident how confident can we be that our cynicism about how much they believe any of this stuff uh, and, our, and our faith they'll pull away um, will, will be vindicated it's one of those one-time experiments right we don't get to, we don't get to come back and go oh wow guys that, that, like, you know, that full-on confrontation <laughs> I provoked wholly confident they'd back down Totally screwed the pooch on that. Uh, I guess I'm going to have to. We're going to have to run that experiment again. No, no, no my bad. No worry. I think it comes down to how threatened. Threatened. Today's a good day. Gone cockney. How threatened that that inner card that you're talking about feels. Um, and I think the question of that is is it goes back to what Scott originally talked about, which is you know is it jumping up and down for a little bit of attention or is there something more serious going on. That, that is the beginning and end of my thought process right there. I would venture to say that North Korea is not the only case where you see leaders who believe years of effectively telling themselves what they want to hear, giving themselves visions of the world. I mean, you saw it with 
Libya's Gaddafi, for example, you see it to an extent with the Syrian regime. I mean, he really was kind yeah. of crazy, right? Yeah. He was on medications that sent his brain funny. Exactly. But at the same time, say in the case of Gaddafi, you saw a regime which gave up its drive to nuclear weapons because at the same time, mm. you can be a bit off your head, but you can still make calculations yeah. about what's going to occur. And I think Cristobal has got it right that if the threat calculation is such that, you know, the they do not feel like they have to just respond to like an imminent, their imminent demise yeah. from outside. Then you have that space you can work with. I hear what you're saying, Adam. That's never a guaranteed, yeah. and we know it. But it, and they rely on that. Like and, that, 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 that nagging fear that maybe you're going to be held responsible for provoking Armageddon, yeah. or even just the heavy shelling of Seoul, which you know, nuclear weapons notwithstanding, yeah. is you know, is something they're well capable of doing. Yeah. A lot of the threat that North Korea poses to the South is straight up conventional threat. They used to have this yeah. massive amount of artillery yeah. aimed right at the middle of a modern city. They yeah. could kill thousands of people within minutes if they launched a war. Exactly. And I think the big change is just come back to say, is that. I think you have to look at this in regional context, and that is that, for example, if you've got the assurance that China is not going to support North Korea's aggressive intentions against the South, for example, that China is part of the process and sees the problem in North Korea, you've got that multilateral approach, which is what you really need uh, to contain. The, the real threat here is that a single country says, we're going to just go and take on North Korea because we can't stand it anymore, and then we're into really dangerous territory. So, Cristela, do you think that... Um characterizing them as uh, recalcitrant children, is that helpful because it de-escalates the seriousness with which we treat the situation, or is it unhelpful because that's the kind of patronizing talk that's going to aggravate it? What's your default instinct on uh, analogies of that nature applied to nuclear armed states? I wish that I knew more about North Korea in order to more uh, astutely answer that question. But since we're talking about instincts, I would say that characterising them, and it's so hard not to, but characterising them as recalcitrant children um, and kind of caricatures of a state uh, makes us, it increases our sense of safety and distance and allows us to feel a little bit more control over the situation. And I think that's the interesting point. So is it, you know, I don't know whether it, whether it, we should be taking them more seriously and, and, and devising appropriate uh, corresponding policies, but I do think that it makes us feel better about us, about the situation, about ourselves, and about them. Mm. And that is dangerous, I think. Yeah, because as, as you said before, there is this cartoonish quality now. I mean, Team America, World Police, yeah. uh, the, the movie by the by the South Park makers. Uh, did its fair bit for this as well, but, and they you know they don't help themselves. There's something about I think it's about the fact that they seem so far out of time. Like there was a period around 1960 when if you dressed like that and talked like that and believed these things, you know you were part of the wave of the future. But now that has like the quality of yesterday's vision of tomorrow, um, and it uh, uh, it makes you seem ridiculous. So yeah. pop culture has picked up on them through various sources. As, as, as inherently ridiculous, and and, but they're course. also dangerous at the same time. And you get this, I mean, it's so easy to caricature them, not only for that, but the, the, the individual that, that's at the head of this, and mm. the funny haircut and the glasses and the weird suit and the love of black and all the rest of it. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it lends itself to caricature. Mm. Yeah. Stay tuned. Um, Scott's put his money on no, no Armageddon this year. Okay, du duly noted, booked, uncertainty registered, bets taken, topic closed. Okay.
Okay, it's uh, time for our regular number of the week round where we discuss a popular news story which has a number that we can connect to it in some way. Scott, kick us off. Number one. It was the sum total of times that President Barack Obama in his State of the Union speech referred to the issue of guns or gun control. Having been briefed that Obama was going to make some major initiative, he was going to deal with this issue of the violence in America, the many thousands who are killed each year by firearms. That's all he said about it. And I think that's kind of appropriate in a negative way. The fact of the matter is, is that he's had over seven years to deal with the issue and that having given the glimmer that he was going to deal with it only this past week. He basically signaled that he's walking away from it and nothing's going to be done. He did give a big speech about it the other week, didn't he? Well, that's fine. You give a big speech about it, but here's the State of the Union. Here's your chance to press this. Here's your chance to keep moving with it. And he doesn't. Now, who's to say he may not return to it? But the way I'm reading it, it was a little bit of sound and fury in terms of what I might do with executive orders, but he's not going to grapple with the fundamental issue. There might be wider issues here. I think Obama's a god, rightfully, took credit for a lot that he has done, stabilizing the economy. I think advances on social issues, some of which he can claim credit for, some of which goes beyond him, such as the advances in gay and lesbian rights, including same-sex marriage, um, positive relations with some countries in the world. But on critical issues, this is a president who I think has basically, at the end of the day, stepped back. He did it on climate change. He's done it on gun control. He's done it by basically creating a new war on terror over the Islamic State um, without addressing the core issues, Syria, Iraq, Palestine, other issues. I'm just going to come back to this. I could add another number, which is the number of people beyond one, the number of people killed each year by handguns. Trust me, that number would be far greater than the number who are killed by the Islamic State, not just in the United States, uh, but in many parts of the world but it will be the Islamic State rather than guns that Obama will continue to focus on uh, for the rest of this year, I think to the detriment of the American public. Yeah, uh, and I am, I'm going to go straight into my one because it's basically on the same story, although the number that I, that, that, that I went into it with was eight, which is the number of years uh, that Barack Obama's done the State of the Union now. Um, this was his, his last one. Um, and, I mean, part of... I've, I feel for him as you're hitting him with that critique, really. I'm, I'm a terrible Obama sympathizer, as everybody who knows me knows. But you know, there's only so much you can get done in the American system without control of the Congress, because that means he can't pass laws, basically. And that's the, the problem he's been in, is that he came into office full of talk and aspiration about how he was going to get past partisanship and partisan divides to get things done based on you know, some kind of rational engagement with the issues in an attempt to find consensus and he's coincided with a time or produced a time or some mixture of those two things of uh, the most deep and unpleasantly intoned partisanship that America has seen in, in, in quite a long time. He kind of acknowledged that in the course of the, the speech that he gave. Um, but he also called, and this was clearly a, uh, he was throwing some shade in the direction of Donald Trump, but also his, his other opponents in the Republican primary process, um, by calling for the importance of a rational, of rational constructive debates if America is going to function into the future and that if politics 
you know, needs to be fixed because its politics is, is broken right now. And uh, I don't know how optimistic or hopeful I am that it's going to happen, but I certainly want to second that opinion because, I mean, I think, you know, we can overstate how much uh, um, uh, partisanship is just about irrationality and stupidity. Like, I think you could perfectly well have a rational, constructive debate that would still boil down to some very serious divisions uh, that people have that can't be reconciled. It's not just about how you talk about things. But accepting that to be true, my God, the United States can do better than it does right now in terms of its its public discourse on a, on a variety of issues. I think it was Paul Krugman's phrase was that uh, the Republican Party has been trending stupid um, for for some years now, and this may be the year when it finally gets uh, gets swallowed by the by the monster that it, that it's been feeding. The way some things have, the way the way some issues have have played out, but if. We accept that there are major differences of principle that cannot be easily resolved. It would be nice if we could at least talk about them uh, uh, in, in, in a better way, would be, would be my thought. Crystal, la, la, la. Yes, my number of the week is three, uh, geographically removed from the first two numbers of the week. And my number of the week is three because this is the third time, I think, that I've come to this podcast and said that there has been a bombing in Turkey. Um, last year, it was in the middle of the year, 33 people were killed in Suruç, and in October, 102 people were killed in Ankara. Um, and yesterday, there was a suicide bombing in Istanbul, right in the heart of the tourist sector in the old part of the city where uh, 10 people were killed, 15 people were injured. Um, almost all of the people who were killed were tourists, uh, with the exception of one person from Turkey, I think. Um, most of those were Germans, which might have an interesting impact on the discussion that we had earlier as well. Um, so I bring general depression to the, to, to, to the um, number of the week this week. Uh, I think the latest is that um, three Russians were arrested and, and the Turkish government has um, swept kind of 60 or 70 people up in different cities. And I also wonder uh, if those people were legitimately linked to this attack or if it's an excuse in part to also clean up some um, some uh, people that they don't want hanging around who may not have anything to do with this attack. Um, mm. Russian is not the most welcome identity in Turkey. No, well, that's world. interesting. Or Kurdish is also not the most welcome identity mm. in Turkey. Um, um, but I, Scott made a point earlier that was interesting about why they might have arrested three uh, Russian nationals. The Russians are accused of working with the Islamic State. So in fact, this actually might be a way to bring a reconciliation between Russia and Turkey after the incidents such as the shooting down of Moscow's warplanes, mm. because they can both say, we both are united against the Islamic State, against terrorism. So there may be some diplomatic signaling which is going on with these arrests. Interesting. Well, I will certainly say that my time doing this podcast uh, has not made me more hopeful about Turkey over the course of the number of times that we've, that we've talked about it, that's for sure. Onward. 
Reports have emerged over the last 13 days that on New Year's Eve, Cologne, Western Germany, was witness to an almost total breakdown in police control of the streets near the main train station. As those who had been celebrating the New Year left the station, we now know that large numbers of women were assaulted, some sexually and many robbed, by what witnesses have described as a large assembly of heavily intoxicated men. About 200 criminal complaints have since been filed, and so far the identities of 32 suspects have been made public. A small number were German, but more were Algerian, Moroccan, Iranian, Syrian, and others. Coming after a year in which Germany admitted more than a million refugees, many in less than controlled circumstances, these events have sent sparks flying perilously close to what many suspect is a tinderbox of political discontent on the issue of immigration. Many on the right are all too ready to blame Chancellor Angela Merkel for sacrificing the safety and well-being of German natives by making Germany far more receptive to an influx of refugees than other nations. There's also been criticism of the police who had suspected restricted information about what happened and the suspects due to fear of the consequences of making the ethnic makeup of the group of attackers public. The police chief has since been pushed into early retirement. On Saturday, three marches took place in the city, one by right-wing anti-immigration forces, another by their left-wing opponents, and both of those gave the police a workout to keep order, and a third protesting violence against women. With German politics apparently polarising in response to these events and Chancellor Merkel under increasing pressure from the right, has the first night of 2016 marked the beginning of the end of Germany's capacity to play the role of liberal beacon in addressing the ongoing migration and refugee crisis? So, Kristalla, yes. how do you go on this one? Do you see this as just the predictable dark forces that we all know are there anyway, seizing on an unusual event to push their pre-existing agenda of xenophobia or does this reveal some very real problems that come as part of the package when a European nation opens its doors to quite so many new arrivals all at once? Can I just sigh again with this one? Can yeah. I, can I can trademark myself a long, frustrated sigh? Um, I'm conflicted about this story for a number of reasons. And I think that you pointed to a lot of really important things. Um, first, I think... People's response to this, the demonstrations, the Islamophobia, the anti-refugee backlash, all of this is, I think, an understandable, and, and I want to use understandable very carefully, an understandable response to, as you said, a massive influx of people in a very short period of time, and that would strain the fabric of any society, right? So people are conservative, people are generally afraid of change, um, especially quick changes, and feeling threatened and uncertain. In a global climate where ISIS has you know, bombed um, or attacked various places, and I think Germans feel it closer and closer to home for themselves. So they're afraid and that's understandable. Um, and that's the first thing. And that's the context. I think, for yeah, yeah. That's where the this context. sentiment that might be waiting poised to come out to play. I think that while the Germans have coped better than many, that many countries, um, I think tensions. It's natural that tensions rise, right? So, so, and that fear is absolutely going to be exploited, and we're seeing it exploited by far right groups. And that, for me, is the part that's very dangerous, because not only does that 
push on people's very real fears of change and what's happening and, and imminent threats from ISIS, but it also creates this spiral and it influences, of course, political decisions. And so Angela Merkel came out and said, you know, that um, people who have been found to be asylum seekers and perpetrators of this really scary violence um, will be sent back or may be sent back, will be sent back, what did she say? I like, we will not close the door to that, something like that. Mm. And she's also said that we need to speak about uh, the cultural fundamentals of our coexistence. So, so I think her response was, um, under the amount of pressure that she is, I think a pretty measured one and a very careful one and a very responsible one. And I do think that, yeah, in contexts like this, you do, you, I think, opening a discussion about the fundamentals of, of your society is relevant and important, and you should be having those discussions. Um, but what that also opens the door to is this hysterical anti-Islam, uh, the Islamophobic, um, very racist, uh, fear-mongering. But I think, so times like this test societies all societies, even the most liberal ones. Um, and then there's, and then I think there's the, 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 the issue at the heart of it, which is that women were attacked. And there's a part of me that feels really, and this is where I'm conflicted, this was, this was really, I mean, it wasn't just Cologne, it was a series of attacks in different places, right? Uh, whether or not they were related, whether or not it was accidental, or whether it was random. Um, but it lights the fires of those really racist, really orientalist, really sexist um, images of we must protect our women from the Arab marauding hordes. Mm. And that makes me feel very, very uncomfortable. So, and that, because it appeals to a specific white historical misogynistic fear fantasy. It's like, it's like a deep river of cultural references ready to be accessed very ready to be accessed and that's what we see being played in in every country and and especially i mean every one of these western countries that are feeling this but but this is the very clear kind of visualization in in germany as a result of, of what happened um, mm. it makes me feel really uncomfortable yeah i mean i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna echo the deep sigh i think because it's really fraught um, i think is the word that, that comes to my mind the problem is that it's so it's so difficult to take it on directly yeah. because you know that there are so many people of bad faith, essentially, yeah. who want to use it, the specific events that occurred, as a plug-in part, to the, as a piece for their jigsaw that takes you to a kind of generally sweepingly xenophobic, racist, uh, hysterical, culturally nativist yeah. um, 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 place. Um, and there are all sorts of, you know, arguments available if you want to just turn your eyes away from it. And if you want to turn it into an argument about that entirely, the, the arguments are there. Yeah. Like, you know, people can come out and say, oh, you know, there's a problem with sexual assault in general yeah. in Germany. We should talk about that. I mean, that feels kind of like when people say black lives matter, yeah. sometimes all lives yeah. matter. That kind yeah. of feels like that sort of response yeah. to me. It's like, well, no doubt that is true. Yeah. But I do feel like there's a specific issue here and it would be turning away from that to, to, to not talk about it. You know, this, this did happen um, 
it is connected, it would seem clearly, with the question yeah. of large numbers of people arriving from overseas yeah. all at once in way. Because if you let in, the more people you let in at one time, the more difficult all the challenges of assimilation yeah. uh, and uh, management of that process uh, become. And ignoring that, um, if people who uh, have liberal hopes for how that immigration process works out and is managed uh, completely refuse to engage with the reality of the fact that this seems to stem from that and is a challenge arising from it, then I think that opens up a dangerous, neglected space in the political discourse. The question then is, you know, how do you thread your way through that middle road of trying to maintain uh, uh, a view that says, you know, what, what Merkel says about the immigration and refugee situation, yeah. which is we can deal with this, we will deal with this, this problem needs to be addressed, people need to be allowed to come in. Um, but the fact that that process, as this sends us a very clear signal, if it is not managed yeah. properly and very carefully, uh, has all the potential to cause a serious crisis, political, social, etc., um, um, in, uh, in Europe. Because, you know, you are uh, very open to the, to the accusation, and maybe it's even a true statement to the effect, to, to the effect that to some extent, for the sake of the bigger picture and the humanitarian interest and the political interest in helping address this refugee situation, you are trading off some things that yeah. are valuable to some people within, uh, within um, the German population that's already there, because they're going to have to deal with a whole bunch of problems, possibly including issues of public order uh, that, that were not there um, before. The one thing that it does, just as a sideline um, draw to my attention, that was a story that was in the news some time ago, and so it doesn't relate directly to this, but that Norway, which has had a large uh, intake of, uh, of people from overseas, has started running these kind of compulsory classes in which those who are recently arrived from parts of the world where the politics and gender relations are very different, often very conservative countries, who then don't know what they're situation is and what the appropriate norms and mores of behavior are when they're confronted with Western women and Western mm. society have to be, for want of a better word, educated uh, in, in what appropriate behavior patterns are. And I'm conflicted about that too because it has all the potential to send the signal that sexual assault is something that brown people from yeah. other places do and everyone yeah. here knows the right way and therefore yeah. you know, this is a problem that, that, that maps directly from one onto the other. But then the pragmatic part of me wants to say, well, you know, maybe this is a real thing. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want, I refuse on point of ideological principle to deny the possibility that maybe that, that's, you know, it's not, it is, that is a real enough problem to need to be addressed with, with something like that. And if the Norwegians uh, find that it's successful, maybe that becomes part of the, of the broader program of management for assimilating new people. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I have found the reaction really interesting to this because you, you've touched upon it, that it stokes up so many immediate reactions which are, maybe it's the refugees that have caused this, maybe it's the migrants, maybe it's for ethnic reasons, religious reasons, anything. That I wanted to take a step back, and the first step I had was a colleague reminded me this week very effectively, he said, look, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, you've got countries like India where this problem of organized assault on women by groups of men mm -hmm. is, is, is entrenched. Yeah. You know, you've seen this in Egypt. Um, 
including just after the 2011 revolution where it took place. You know, there was a US TV presenter whose name escapes me. Laura Logan. Laura Logan, Logan who was, who assaulted. was assaulted. In, but of course, in it wasn't just Laura Logan. There were a lot of women assaulted at that time. You saw it in the United States a generation ago. It was called wilding at that point. And it was groups of men, for example, in New York City that were attacking women. So this isn't something that is specific to this particular group of North Africans, largely North Africans, in Germany on this occasion. That's the first thing to say. It's not to excuse it. But that's the first thing to say. It's also not completely isolated. So the second thing is, then, all right, well, what about the approach? And I think building upon that, I think it's not a difficult one for me. You have to take an inclusive rather than an exclusive approach to this. And that is, if you go exclusive and say, it's the fault of that group, it's the fault of this group, it's whatever, you're going to wind up creating division, you're going to wind up stoking fear, etc. An inclusive approach which says, look, we all are in a country where we adhere to decent standards of behavior according to our laws, according to being good citizens, and according to being good people. Mm -hmm. And we do that with respect to gender issues, economic issues, as well as basic issues that you don't go around hurting each other. Mm. Now, I think that's what Merkel was aiming at in her reaction. Um, I think that's what you referred to, ironically, in the Norway case. And I know that they're looking at educating what we would call civics. Right, but, but, but I mean, what would the practical implication of that be? Because if everyone's going to be treated equally, does that mean the government of Norway has to send everyone in Norway on a course on, no, on, no, on the norms of gender relations? Or, or are they allowed to address the specific issue of people coming from places where the culture is very different? When you come into a country, and you want to be part of that country, you know, whether or not you're going for citizenship or just simply to live there, there is a process of civic education which is normally accept, you know, uh, uh, expected when you come in. And, you know, because we have our own laws, we have our own mores, and it's not in the sense of we think you're going to be dangerous or violent, but you should know this. Mm. And you should do this. I think it's, it's the way that you approach it. Look, Germany's in the middle of what could well be an unprecedented long-term experiment, at least for a European country since World War II, which is the influx of people that it is taking in. Yeah, a million people in one year. That's an incredible one. number. That's incredible. But you think about the numbers that other countries, like the United States is having fights about the acceptability of 75,000 people. Australia took 12,000 um, 12, people. Yeah, so like it's just, it's, it's colossal by the yeah. standards of what anybody else is attempting. And Adam, you're absolutely right that this causes all kinds of questions about infrastructure, about the legal system. It causes all that, and we all know that. But this problem is not going to go away about people moving or trying to move between countries. And so if you don't get a constructive reaction out of Germany to this, and I think if people seize upon that, and you play shut your doors, mm -hmm. look, you're stoking up a lot of problems beyond the immediate issue that has been raised as horrible and as violent as this incident but I do think I think if you want to forestall the reaction that does say shut the doors, I think people who have a liberal sensibility need to engage with, with the reality of, yeah. of, of the events properly because the biggest contributor to the success and the thriving, I think, of that uh, sweeping right-wing reaction would be the sense that there's some liberal elite that isn't feeling as affected by this as others might be that isn't prepared to look reality in, in the face. That's a trope that sometimes quite disingenuously the right can, can, can appeal to and I think it would be dangerous in, in this case. So it's, it's about uh, addressing the realities of the problem while trying to do that within a framework that moves a broader comprehensive liberal approach to the to, to the, the overall situation. What I'm saying is, is, you, is that you would you would do this with any group of people. Yeah. 
who had committed this type of crime. You would do this through your existing systems. I think if, if the perception is up that we have to create a special set of rules or a special reaction to this incident, that's what I would kick back against. I'm not saying you don't act. I think Merkel's absolutely right that those who commit crimes who are asylum seekers get sent back. Bang. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But she's also right in the, in, in the approach that we need to have these conversations, which is what... No. Can you imagine if a politician like Donald Trump, who just last week confused Moroccans with Mexicans... This, this was in his campaign video where they, they used footage of people moving across that border uh, as what one might very charitably refer to as an illustration of the possibilities for the American-Mexican border in the future. <laughs> Although I think uh, uh, there are other ways you could interpret that event. But, but can you imagine if a politician like Trump had been in charge of Germany when this had occurred? Right. Well, well, he, well he already. Well, that's a non. That's a non-starter. He would not have been. In, he, he would not have brought in a million people. Someone. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, he, I mean, his very first entry yeah. into the whole presidential race. You remember back in the the, the, the Halcyon days, where we believed that a few verbal gaffes from a crass racist might be enough to knock someone out of a presidential race. <laughs> um, he, did he, we know? he basically it was it was that he referred to. He basically implied that uh, all or most Mexicans were rapists. Yeah. Um, so. Going full circle back, this, this would chime in perfectly with the general tone and mood music of his uh, inside group, outside group, uh, sex threat And not thinking. just him. I mean, this, what, what this dog whistles to is, is other governments, conservative right-wing governments that's, that haven't let people in, that say, this is why. Yeah, you know, you see, you see what, what happens? happens. See, we're right. Yeah. And people respond to that. Yeah. Mm. Because if people feel like their personal safety is threatened, yeah. nothing... nothing or might be might yeah. be. If you can make them believe that they need to be in fear for their personal safety, that immediately overrides so many other views and positions they might be more open to across the, uh, across the board. And, you know, when you look at the fear fest that is the Republican primary debates in the United no. States at the moment, you can see that they're, they're very um, self-aware about that political mechanic mm -hmm. and they, they, you know... There is a contest to get as many people as possible, as frightened as possible, because uh, the, the, there's political hate to be made oh, yeah. from, from creating that yeah. situation. And hopefully, and as I said, we won't see this in Germany. We saw people take responsibility, or at least people being forced to take responsibility yeah. with the resignations. We've seen some attempt at accountability without absolving those who carried out the crimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, 2016, let's try to stay at least a little bit hopeful. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, it was um, just as a final note, I mean, it was a kind of reverse of what one sometimes finds in these situations. Normally, it's like the police do something brutal and crass and mm. racist, and there's a demand from liberals for them to resign. It sounds like in this, what they were basically accused of was um, an excess of concern about the political sensitivities that led them to be borderline disingenuous or dishonest about the, or at least very, very... Um, reluctant to release information because they were worried that it would produce a liberal response. So Germany is a very different country, I guess, is what I'm what I'm getting to with, with that one, at least in terms of its uh, its police's political sensibilities. It seems. I think we've set the world to rights. Uh, thank you very much. 
You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a review or a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. You can also come to our show page on Facebook, and you most definitely should, uh, facebook.com forward slash Poll Worldview, uh, where you can see article links, comments, etc. My co-hosts, as usual, have been Kristali Akinthu. Where would people, should they hypothetically want to engage with you on social media platforms, find you, Christala. They can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. And Scott, uh, thank you very much. Where can people find you if they're tracking you down through digital means? Always hanging out at Political Worldview's partner, EA Worldview, eaworldview.com, or on Twitter at ScottLucas underscore EA. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, you can find me, I'm Adam Quinn, on Facebook, number 161, if we're being technical about it. Follow me there. I do it more on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, at Adam James Quinn. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us uh, from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We hope you will be too. Bye. 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 Bye.